0: Hello and welcome, I'm Rab Houston and I work for the School of History in the University of St Andrews. This podcast is one of my series about the history of British Psychiatry since the time of the Renaissance. It's the third of four podcasts on mass media representations of both madness and psychiatry in the past. This podcast is simply entitled Film. One of the earliest film portrayals of psychiatry and the asylum is the German director Robert Wiener's The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, first screened in 1920. The film weaves together an account of mania and delusion with a sinister portrayal of a psychiatrist and his asylum. Film buffs regard it as a classic. It represents very well the popularity of medicalized identities in cinema portrayed in both patients and practitioners. Far better known is the film of Ken Casey's novel One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, which was first published in 1962. Casey's novel was a scathing critique of the asylum as both an instrument and a symbol of society's many oppressions. In a critically acclaimed and widely viewed movie adaptation of the book, first screened in 1975, Jack Nicholson plays the role of psychiatric patient Randall P. McMurphy. After being admitted to a psychiatric hospital, he rebels against the inhuman culture of, its, of this mental health machine, and he tries to engage his fellow patients in his revolt. Casey used the work of American sociologist Irving Goffman, particularly Goffman's enormously influential 1961 book, Asylums Essays on the Social Situation of Mental Patients and Other Inmates. Goffman had worked undercover as a cleaner in an American psychiatric hospital while preparing the book. He regarded asylums as one species of what he called a total institution, where all aspects of the lives of inmates were closely controlled by a small cadre of staff. Like the inmates of prisons, military barracks, and even concentration camps, Goffman thought asylum patients were downtrodden and dehumanised, producing the very symptoms that mental hospitals were meant to cure. Incidentally, Goffman produced another very important work two years later, which is also highly relevant to understanding the experience of mental illness and other types of social exclusion. Called, simply, Stigma, it has the evocative subtitle, Notes on a Spoiled Identity. One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest is a composite. It's a composite of all that was bad about mid-20th century American asylums, designed to expose and provoke, and so to change attitudes. It came out of, and vividly represented, the anti-psychiatry movement I talked about in two earlier podcasts. Some media representations can indeed play fast and loose with facts. Trading in horror, indignation, sensationalism and overstatement. This definitely cannot be said of one of the best film depictions of historic madness and that's the 1994 film The Madness of King George, directed by Nicholas Heitner, adapted from the play by Alan Bennett, and starring Nigel Hawthorne and Helen Mirren. The longest reigning king in British history George III experienced several bouts of debilitating mental problems, most notably in 1788 and 1789, and then again from 1810 until his death in 1820. In a classic published study called George III and the Mad Business, first issued in 1969, Mother and son team Ida McAlpine and Richard Hunter sought to debunk psychoanalytic and other psychogenic interpretations of George III's ailments. Instead, they proposed a rare metabolic condition called porphyria, which can cause anxiety, confusion, insomnia and seizures. Alan Bennett relied on this theory when writing the original play and adapting it for film. McAlpine and Hunter's interpretation has been discredited more recently. Instead, I think most clinicians who've looked at this now favour a diagnosis of manic depression. This diagnosis was fashionable for a time in the mid-twentieth century, but much more recently two doctors have studied the king's handwritten letters. They discovered that during his episodes of illness his sentences were much longer than when he was well. When he was in one of his manic phases, a sentence containing 400 words and 8 verbs was not unusual. King George often repeated himself in these letters, and his vocabulary became much more complex, creative, and colourful. These elements can be seen today in the writing and speech of patients going through the manic phase of what's now called bipolar disorder. Whatever ailed George III, the film succeeds admirably in most regards. It sets out the historical context competently, though it does sometimes play with some of the chronology. The film represents the importance of moral management of patients by Francis Willis, including restraint by straitjacket. It exposes the many aggressive or heroic remedies attempted by other physicians who treated the king, like blistering which you might remember from the podcast on therapies. Blistering uses caustics to draw bile out of the body. And finally, in a deeply poignant way, it brings out the boundaries between madness and sanity, falling ill and recovering. Now that last point is especially true towards the end of the film, when the king leads a group of his staff through an impromptu rendition of Act 4, Scene 7, of King Lear, where Lear's emergence from madness is paralleled by King George's own recovery. Rather than stigmatising mental disorder, the film attempts the viewer with empathy and hope. It's a deeply affecting scene. George III recovered in 1789, But as I say, he was plagued by mental illness throughout the remainder of his life. His condition became chronic after 1810 and lasted until his death in 1820. A rather upsetting woodcut of him around that time is the illustration for this week's podcast. George III was an extremely popular monarch and people really felt for him. Why do prominent sufferers like George III matter to the history of mental illness and its representations? The first reason is that their problems were hard to ignore, bringing madness into a public forum. King George III was not a monarch like Queen Elizabeth II. He ruled as well as reigned over the United Kingdom and its empire. His mental capacity crucially affected the government of the country. Second, there is an indirect effect, because debate about his condition and its prognosis promoted change. It's no accident that George III's reign saw a hitherto unprecedented number of investigations into madness and mad houses and legislation about how the mad should be treated. And thirdly, we know much more about both the symptoms and the care of historic celebrities than we do for almost anyone else. And that gives a unique set of insights into the kinds of mental disorders that existed and how they were dealt with. The modern equivalent, I think, is the celebrity who speaks out about their own experience of mental illness or how tragedy involving madness has affected them. Two examples by way of conclusion to this podcast. One of the most intensely affecting television programmes I've seen recently is the 2015 BBC documentary Suicide and Me, in which British rapper Professor Green, uh, his real name is Stephen Manderson, struggled to come to terms with the suicide of his father and with his own depression. Like Amy Winehouse, Professor Green's songs are shot through with blackness. The other is the actor Stephen Fry, a prominent example of someone who, so to speak, came out as a manic depressive and who has been, since 2011, president of the important mental health charity Mind. In an award-winning documentary, The Secret Life of the Manic Depressive, first screened in 2006, Fry first spoke publicly about living with manic depression and so began a very valuable national conversation about mental health. In February 2016 he revisited his experience in another documentary, The Not-So-Secret Life of the Manic Depressive, 10 years on. In both films he opened himself up. He vividly evoked his own hopes and fears, highs and lows, and those of fellow sufferers. Now, you might wonder, is there a connection between Stephen Fry's obvious abilities as an actor and his mental health? Only he can say. However, Next time I am going to talk in general terms about the link between madness and creativity. I hope you'll join me for that podcast.